Geez, oh man, but people are on fire for details about the $60 million bribery scandal in Columbus, if the audience for this podcast is any indication. And we have more to talk about today. It's This Week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer for Monday, July 27th. I'm Chris Quinn. Chris Warnowski is taking a well-deserved day off, but I'm with my colleague Jane Cahoon and just back from a week in the wilds of Michigan, Laura Johnston, your photos were filled with joy. <laughs> joy that I was not not in the middle of the uh, scandal, but I, I missed it. I listened to the podcast to feel like I was I was right there with it. But you had a good time. Oh, right? it was beautiful. Yeah, so much fun. Yeah, I'm I'm a big believer in Michigan, as we all know. All right, let's uh, let's get to it. Who is Larry Householder, the man at the center of the sixty million dollar First Energy bribery scheme in the State House? Jane Cahoon, we took our time to to lay out who he is. Andrew Tobias wanted to do a multidimensional profile on him because so many people didn't know who he was before last Tuesday. Uh, I thought the story got into a, a, a level of detail. I learned things in it that I, I didn't know. Um, and I think it brought him to, to life in a, in a good way. Clearly, our audience loved it. When I looked yesterday, that story was at the top of our our. Uh, our list for for audience. So what did we find? Well, Andrew had the benefit of earlier doing a profile on householders. So he had a lot of this material and he he just further expanded on it. And, you know, Householder is a guy who he has humble beginnings. You know, he's from rural Perry County in southern Ohio, a farmer, used to be an insurance agent. And he basically was somebody who came to the state house as someone said, with a chip on his shoulder, a guy from Appalachia with a chip on his shoulder. He didn't want to be a backbencher. He didn't want to be seen as just a hick, someone said. And so he was very deliberate about consolidating his power. And he rose not once, but twice to be Speaker of the House. He's, he's He's got a certain charm about him, but he's also cunning and smart and never to be underestimated. Although we'll see how much charm he has in an orange jumpsuit. <laughs> the, 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 the thing that struck me was it almost like he came in, looked at these guys, sized them up and thought, I'm not only going to play your game, I'm going to win. I, I'm going to, I'm going to be in your world and I'm going to own it because of that Appalachian chip on his shoulder. The, the detail, Laura Johnson mentioned this before we started the podcast that I, I wasn't aware of was that he he had a three-year-old daughter who died a a kind of a gruesome death. Yeah, it was a freak accident involving a power window on their minivan. That's that's all I know about it. But, you know, he's he's got five sons, and this was the only daughter, and she was only three years old. So quite tragic. I think about those five sons, and if he gets convicted, and with the feds, you know, usually they don't bring charges unless they've got you. How do you look those five sons in the eyes? I mean, I just I, that that would be devastating. I've got two kids, and they would just look at me with such disappointment if I went down a road like that. I can't imagine what that that might be like. Yeah, it's it's tragic. No matter how you look at it, um, he's sixty one years old right now, by the way. So, you know, not exactly young to be going to prison. No, no. I mean, he if he gets a 20-year sentence, which is what he's looking at, and with the amount of money involved that matters in federal court, he could spend the rest of his days in a federal prison. Well, check out the Andrew's story on Cleveland.com. It's a winner. 
You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is First Energy in danger of losing a lot more than the $1 billion it received to bail out its two nuclear plants in what federal prosecutors now say was a corrupt bribery scheme? Laura Johnston, we took a look whether the stockholders and shareholders of First Energy might have a claim now that the stock price has plummeted in the aftermath of this big news. So what's the story? Yeah, the company is likely going to get sued in several lawsuits in courts all around the country. Corey Schaefer talked to legal experts who said there are typically two kinds of lawsuits you can file in a case like this. They both revolve around the company not disclosing to investors what exactly they were doing and this idea that stock prices were artificially inflated. They they fell, the stock prices fell 40% last week when Householder and four others were charged. So if you buy stock in a company while its employees engage in wrongdoing that is later exposed, you can you can sue to recover at least some of the money lost from the drop in stocks. And also shareholders can bring a lawsuit against individual employees who executed the misdeeds and conceal, concealed them from the stockholders. And likely these lawsuits would all get consolidated into one lawsuit that would likely be settled. Corey did a great job on this story. My favorite line in it is fairly deep into the story where, the, where he's talking with an expert says, you know, they actually have a duty right. to disclose to stockholders that they're breaking the law. No one ever does this. It, it, you know, it's kind of like in the federal realm where you're you're getting a lot of illegal income. You're supposed to declare it on your taxes that, yeah, I'm a drug dealer. I'm selling heroin. I'm making lots of money on my heroin. And, you know, nobody ever does that. But because they don't, they're personally liable if 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 you have you know, if top officials of the utility did wrong things, they can be sued individually for that money. That's a pretty scary prospect for them. And I imagine it's one of the reasons the CEO keeps trying to tell everybody we didn't do anything unethical. Right. We didn't do anything or unethical. Also, it wasn't me. It just wasn't me. I didn't do yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. That that must be another CEO. It's like there's only one CEO, man. That's that, that that's not the that CEO they're describing. That's not me. That's not me. Yeah, the, so, ex- uh, the the expert said that the defense on this is to argue that different prices wasn't solely due to the disclosure of wrongdoing. They may say that it had been an oversight rather than purpose deceit, right? And yeah, I, I just can see how well that's going to go over. Well, I, look, it, it dropped 40% in a day. Mm-hmm. Everybody ran from this thing because this is the atomic bomb going off in Columbus. So there's tangible dollars lost here. Uh, and and I think First Energy is going to be in trouble. Look, they'd already gone into bankruptcy court. Mm-hmm. If they lose some portion of this bailout, and remember, they never opened their books to prove how much they needed. And this time around, they might have to do that, you would hope. They could be hurting for money. This could drive them out of business. And and individually, it would be interesting to watch the, uh, the officers squirm. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is a small key symbol showing up on some Cleveland.com stories starting today? And what do I need to do to read them? Okay, this is not as much of a news story as the other things we're talking about, but it's a pretty big change for how you engage with Cleveland.com. Jane Cahoon, what does that key symbol mean? So it means while most of the content on our site has been free and will continue to be free, access to some of our stories is going to be limited to digital and print subscribers. So that little key means it's a subscriber exclusive and you have to subscribe to to read it. Um, readers have been seeing that little tag for about a month, but 
today, as you said, starting today, those stories are going to be reserved for subscribers. It's going to be about 10 or 12 stories a day. And if you go to one of those stories and you're not a subscriber, it'll it'll take you to a place where you can sign up. But Chris, may, maybe you can expand on yeah. the thinking here <laughs> and and been, some of the reactions maybe that you've gotten to this. Yeah, we've been talking about this with readers now for, I don't know, four to six to eight weeks, although I think we've been telegraphing this day would come eventually. And and the reaction has been interesting. I mean, one person accused me of blackmail, which I thought was ridiculous. I mean, no, you don't accuse your grocery store of blackmail for charging you for your hamburger. The The idea is that it costs us money to produce this. It has value and we need to to get the revenue to to pay for it, we're we're not putting our entire site behind a paywall. We have a, an enormous audience. We provide a lot of information as a public service. We want to continue to do that. But for some of our special exclusive content, we think people should have to pay. So it's ten bucks a month, or it's discounted to a hundred bucks a year. That's twenty seven, twenty eight cents a day, which compared to all the other things people pay for is pretty cheap. So. Uh, I, I've gotten reaction from people saying it's about time. You know, you always should have been charging for content. You guys are morons for not having done that from the beginning, which I guess you could make that argument. And other people saying that they're they're not going to pay for it unless we bring back comments or unless we stop leaning too far to the left or too far to the right. And you know, my answer to that is: look, this is the product. If you want to, if you want it, if it has value to you, pay for it. If it doesn't have value for you, then then you shouldn't be paying for it. But it's the basic value proposition. So going forward, that's what it's going to do. It's this week in the CLE. Why is Cleveland School CEO Eric Gordon taking the bold and possibly heroic step of keeping students learning at home for the first nine weeks of the new school year? The school conversation continues to rage locally across the country. Many parents, many teachers are petrified of going back into the schools. They think the virus is going to surge. There are scientists on both sides. And Eric Gordon took a a pretty bold step last week to say, okay, this is how we're going to deal with it. Laura Johnston, what's this thinking? The thinking is that they are not going to go back into the classroom for the first nine weeks of school. Um, this is at least in part because parents are uncomfortable with sending their kids there while the pandemic is ranging, raging. And I wonder how many other school districts are going to follow suit. So under this 30-page plan, the 37,000 kids in CMSD will start August 24th if they're year-round or September 8th if they're traditional. This is a couple weeks behind their normal start date. And that's so t- Teachers can receive two and a half weeks of training on how to teach in a digital environment, which is really different than teaching in a classroom. They're going to get weekly training during their first quarter. The digital divide has been a huge issue uh, with concern that kids don't have reliable internet or computers to access their lessons. But the, the district, as well as a whole lot of corporations, nonprofits, and foundations, has been working on that since March, and they've distributed 16,000 devices and 9,500 internet hotspots. They've got another 4,000 hotspots and 10,000 devices in the works, and there's more money coming from the state. So they're trying to solve that problem. They're also selected a single online class management platform, so you're not dealing with like Google Forms and this and this and this, which as a parent, I can tell you is very difficult. Um, They had a patchwork of online environments last year. So it sounds like they've got a very kind of streamlined plan to deal with digital uh, education in the first quarter. You know what I like about this is that that it's like a realistic approach. It's it's acknowledging 
that we're not ready, that, you know, Cuyahoga County remains in the red zone. And even though we had fewer cases last week for the first time in the whole month, that it's still raging. And he know, it's just an acknowledgement that we ultimately would have to probably close again anyway if a bunch of teachers get sick. So let's hit the pause button. Let's take the extra nine weeks, be purposeful about our approach with what you said, the single platform. Let's get broadband in. Let's do the best we can and see where we are nine weeks later. So many other districts are all over the place, partly because the state did not do a good job in providing direction. But I mean, the the buzz on social media, I mean, Laura, you're immersed in it. I'm Mm -hmm. immersed in it because my wife's a teacher. Everybody is a bit frantic about that. And Eric Gordon just comes across as this sane, calm presence. Here's what we're doing. We're taking a nine-week pause. We're going to do the best we can. We've prepared for this. We've thought it through. Here's our cogent plan. It was kind of refreshing to see Cleveland, of all the districts, be the leader in sane thought. What did you think? Well, I think if Cleveland can do it, then any district can do it because they have this digital divide problem. Um, And I think it is. They're taking into account what their teachers are saying and what the parents are saying. And you're right. I have been astounded by the the memes and stuff I've seen in social media from from teachers. Th- things like, you know, if my, you know, if you're you're not comfortable with your kid going to school, you can opt out and you go to digital uh, learning for for most of these suburban school districts. And so the teachers are saying, I'm going to have my parent call in and say, Mrs. So and so can't report to her classroom because I'm scared for her health. So I mean, and. With all of these planning, and we have been talking about this, I think since May, you know, what will happen in the fall. No school district has come out and said, here's our plan when a teacher gets sick. Are they going to quarantine an entire classroom? I mean, what happens? You can't. Well, no, they, but, but they did. I mean, what's going to happen if a, if a teacher is exposed, they've got to quarantine for 14 days. Now they're right. supposed to teach in quarantine, but that, that's what I think Gordon looked out at. It's like, okay, I opened the schools. All it takes one or two schools for a kid to bring it in. And however many people that kid gets near, suddenly all those kids, all those teachers have to be quarantined. There's not a deep substitute pool. Right. So you don't have enough adults in the building to keep it open and you have to make all the kids go home. That's chaos. That's chaos for families. It's chaos for teaching. And if you have one class doing one thing and one doing another, it's going to cause problems. Yeah, I agree. And this is a problem for people who are working at home, having their kids at home, as you well know. But at least Gordon is giving them time to prepare for it without any of the mixed messaging. I keep waiting for the schools that have announced their hybrid plans and their return to school to rethink it. I mean, Gordon Gordon said two-thirds of the parents in Cleveland said they were uncomfortable in sub-level with the kids going back. And look, He has to make them happy because he has a big tax on the ballot in November. So Mm -hmm. the last thing he can afford to do right now is infuriate all those parents because then they won't approve the tax and Cleveland's in big trouble. But other districts are hearing from parents. I mean, what do you see in the Rocky River social media about what parents are saying and what they're thinking? I think parents still hope that we will be able to send kids back. Um, We've pushed back our start date by a week. So, and the idea right now is that as it stands, kids would go back for a half day. So they're not going to have to deal with lunch 
or recess at school, no kids are going to be eating lunch or going up to recess under this plan. And it's based on your last name. So I'm thinking, well, you know, if they get it under control in a month, like maybe it'll be okay. And then there's like, you know, the science that says that kids are likely less likely to get it and spread it. But that idea, and I did talk to one teacher who said, we're just considering ourselves essential workers at this point, you know, like grocery store clerks and, and nurses, and we're like going into battle. And I respect that. And I think that's great. But if, if it cannot, if we are still feeling like we did at the beginning of this month, where like the cases keep ratcheting up, then, then no, I think we should be safe because I don't want my my kid or anybody's kid responsible for bringing in a disease that ultimately wrecks someone's life or kills them. I mean, nobody wants that on their conscience and we but should be methodical. But that's what seems logical about what Gordon is doing here. He's looking ahead. School mm-hmm. would start very soon. It's still raging. DeWine, the governor keeps talking about how he's aiming to have a better situation in the fall. Well, this gets them there. This gets them deep into the school year. And if things are better, then you can return kids to school. No harm, no foul. But but at least you get to see. Whereas for the kids that are going back in the next few weeks, in the next month, you don't know. And that's that's what's scary. Anyway, fascinating that, um, that Cleveland is a thought leader on that front. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Who are the likely candidates to replace disgraced Larry Householder as Speaker of the Ohio House? It doesn't really matter. James Cahoon, there's, I think, three names now, maybe more that have popped up. And people are talking about the qualities of these people, like, you know, they're, they're less likely to be corruptible. It doesn't really matter. Will they get anything done other than the repeal of the corrupt bailout? I mean, doesn't this all really take us to past the election, the next House of Representatives when they take take office in January? Well, I, I do think it, it matters for, for one reason. They, they're paralyzed right now, and they have this giant taint hanging over them with their leader facing these federal charges. So, you know, they they need to get something done. They are all facing election, and they, you know, they're um, on summer recess. But you know, if they don't do something that looks credible, I, you know, that, so anyway, the, you're right. A few names have been tossed around. I, I think they want somebody as absolutely vanilla as possible, <laughs> you know, somebody without baggage. Uh, and so uh, some people are trying to draft Bob Cup. He's a respected former Ohio Supreme Court justice from, from Lima, and he's worked really diligently on things like school funding, and he's not considered a political operative. And um, some other folks are behind a guy named Rick Carfagna. He's from Delaware County. And then uh, another name popped up, Jim Butler from Southwest Ohio. He's the speaker pro tem right now, and he's term limited and leaving office at the end of the year. So perhaps they see him as somebody, you know, he doesn't... um, He's, he's not facing re-election. He might be a good caretaker, you know, doesn't have political motivations. Yeah, it's a placeholder because they're right. not playing getting anything done. You know, it struck me over the weekend that, that the Republicans in the House and the Democrats in the House 
there's probably nobody in Ohio more grateful right now for Mike DeWine's mask mandate because they can go to grocery stores and not be recognized <laughs> by people <laughs> who come up and say, man, you're the most corrupt people in the history of the state. Yeah, you know, except for a couple out. of lawmakers, you know, who I, I'd be surprised if they they are yet donning masks. You know, they're probably continuing their protests. So. Man, if I if I were a House member right now, I'd be grateful that I could wear I could wear a mask and be saluted for it because anywhere they go, you got to think people are coming up to them and and yelling at them. So, I mean, the the, the coronavirus is a blessing if you're in a corruptible body. <laughs> you're listening to this week in the CLE. Do we finally have a better understanding of why Discovery Tours, which has provided class trips to countless students in Northeast Ohio, went under in a scandal last year. This was a big story when it happened. Lots of school trips were canceled at the last minute because this this long-standing tour company went under without a whole lot of explanation. Laura Johnston, we now have an explanation. What is it? Yeah, this is another one of those that you're just like, ugh, you know. Discovery Tours had been founded by this guy named Alfred Cipolletti. He ran school trips for more than three decades, the Discovery Tours actually abruptly closed in May 2018. That meant canceled trips to D.C., Chicago, Dearborn, Michigan for dozens of schools across Ohio. I mean, it really ran the gamut. And that was after more than 5,000 families had paid millions of dollars in trip fees. So they paid the money expecting these trips for these kids uh, end of the school year and they were just canceled. So we found out the vice president Alfred, of the company, Alfred's son, Joseph, now faces 18 criminal charges. That includes wire fraud, money laundering, bank fraud, making false statements. The U.S. Attorney Office says he embezzled more than $600,000 from the company, used it to buy vehicles and renovate his backyard in Hudson. So this is one of those uh, corruption ones where he took school kids' money and, and bettered himself, it, it sounds like. Um and actually, the Summit County prosecutor had requested the FBI investigate him in 2018, which I didn't realize. So it's come to fruition. Yeah, I thought it was last year. I can't believe it's been two years. <laughs> it took that long to catch him. But, you know, I got to imagine there aren't many things worse when you stand before a judge than to have taken money out of the pockets of school kids. You know, if you're going to embezzle and you take from a company or something, you know, you're a white collar criminal. But he took the money away and dashed the dreams of school kids. So I, I, if he gets convicted, you know, until he's, until a trial, he's, he's innocent until proven guilty. But if he gets convicted, I think the judge will be thinking special place in hell kind of sentence for him. Yeah. They, they said, the prosecutors say that it was between 2014 and 2018 that he withdrew company cash. He bought money orders made payable to himself and then deposited it in his personal bank account. And then he made efforts to hide it. He claimed the money was stolen for trips, according to the prosecutors. He forged an email to a hotel vendor saying the company had a hacked account. He paid vendors for previous student trips with deposits for future trips with a pyramid kind of scheme. And then he took out these high interest loans to cover the losses. That actually drove Discovery Tours into bankruptcy. And that was in 2018 when they were just, uh, they said they had about $1.4 million in assets and owed $3.9 million um, from the company. And then he and his wife actually filed for bankruptcy last year, claiming they were more than $550,000 in debt. What's sad is, is that his dad had built up a business that, that served Northeast Ohio for, as you said, three decades. Right. And now the legacy is disgrace. You're listening to This Week in the CLE.
Has Ohio hit a plateau on coronavirus cases or are things getting worse? What about Cuyahoga County? Jen Cahoon, we had kind of a mixed reading over the past week over where we stand. We haven't checked in on this for a while. Kind of bring us up to speed. Where are we with the increase of coronavirus cases in the state? Well, you're right. It's it's a mixed bag. On Friday, we had um, 1,560 cases, and Saturday we had 1,438. Those were the 17th and 18th consecutive day over a thousand over the 1,000 so-called plateau. On Sunday, we dropped a little to 889. So it's it's a trend we're watching. Um, the hospitalizations uh, and you know patients in intensive care, you know, they're both rising. So it, it's it, it's really hard to say which which way we're going here. And then in in you know Cuyahoga County, they they still have I think the second most deaths in the in the state among counties, but but as of last week, the the number of cases in suburban Cuyahoga County declined for the first time uh, in July, and and the test positivity rates also decreased for the first time since since mid June. So. The health commissioner, Terry Allen, you know, cautioned, don't make too much out of this. We got to still watch the trend. But it, well, uh, you know, it looks like we could be headed for a downward trend, which would be good in Cuyahoga County. Well, last week, Governor Mike DeWine, when he made his mask mandate statewide, not just the red counties, he said he was seeing and his health officials were seeing evidence that it was working, that that we might have been at a plateau. He said the same thing Terry Allen did, which was don't. Don't get excited yet and don't pull back on your precautions. Right. But I wonder if this is evidence that the ma- the mask mandate persuaded enough people to put the damn things on who weren't wearing them right. before to make the difference. They, of course, they did just- get out of the, uh, they were headed for purple, you know, the purple zone, but, but uh, they're, they're in red now. So that was good too. It was disturbing from both the county and statewide uh, last week to hear that that the spread was happening in family get-togethers and gatherings of friends. Uh, we're going to do some more to explore that, what the psychology is of why when you get together with people that you haven't been with for a long time because you're related to them, you feel safe not to take the precautions and wear the mask. Uh, I, I think that's the biggest challenge they have right now is to convince people don't do that. Uh, and I, you know, I, I think all of us have probably taken some of those risks ourselves. Anyway, it's uh, it'll be interesting to see where it goes this week. It's as as the week goes on, usually Thursday and Friday or when we see the high numbers, we'll have to see how it turns out. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Why is the guy suspecting of looting colossal cupcakes on the night of the Cleveland police protest and riot charged in federal court for what amounts to a robbery? Is robbery a federal crime? Jane Cahoon, this one threw me because this is the kind of thing that I don't remember being charged as a federal crime. How did they uh, define this as a federal violation? Well, they defined it as interference of commerce by means of robbery. So I guess there's your there's your federal element right there. But basically, this young man's accused of you know, using a stool to smash the window at Colossal Cupcakes on Euclid Avenue at East 6th. And, uh, you know, five employees took cover in a locked bathroom while this was happening. And uh, they they got him on um, 
video. They they got a uh, tipsters identified him pretty quickly after the FBI. Well, I'm sorry, it was photos. Um, they released photos of him. This seems bogus to me. I mean, when you talk about commerce and on the federal level, it's usually interstate commerce. And this just is the definition of a state crime. It's almost yeah. like the U.S. attorney is on fire to to grab headlines. I just I don't see it. It's not the sentence must be worse. Right. Because if the if they took it federally instead of taking it state court, they must think they can lock them up longer. But it almost seems like an abuse of power by the, the U.S. attorney, Justin Herdman here. When it when this is the definition of a state crime, the guy smashed a window and did a robbery. If he's if he's guilty, that should have been done by Mike O'Malley, the county prosecutor. I, I'm, I'm curious to see if he has a smart lawyer who pushes back on that. I mean, I, I, it just feels like I'm playing with technicalities here to get him. Remember in the Amish beard cutting thing where they tried to make it a federal crime because the scissors were from New York. So they crossed state <laughs> line. And it was one of those. It's like, come on, that's, you know, let, be fair, play by the rules. And meanwhile, you know, Justin Herdman doesn't appear to be doing a damn thing about the police that, that attacked the citizenry in the videos we've posted where people are doing nothing wrong and they're getting shot by police and suffering serious physical harm. That's that's civil rights violations. That is the province of Justin Herdman. And he's charging a guy with robbery. I, I just kind of it's kind of, you know, you're seeing the same kind of nonsense going on in Portland. Thank God we're not Portland. I mean, there's people <laughs> rioting every night trying to burn down buildings. Yeah. It's kind of shocking that the police there can't get that under control. OK, it's this week in the CLE. Well, it's good to have you back, Laura. That's, uh, we missed you last week. And uh, Jane, you're always a delight. Thanks for being on This Week in the CLE. Thanks to everybody for listening. We'll be back with another episode tomorrow. <laughs>